In the realm of fairy tales, we have straw that has spun into gold, we have frogs that turn into pumpkin princes, well, really wonderful princes, Prince Charmings, and we have pumpkins as well that become royal coaches, and we have mice for footmen as well. But while all of that happens in the world of fairy tales, and anything is possible there, in the real world, what we discover are great limitations. And those limitations, they cause problems for the wise men of Babylon in the days of Daniel. And when the problems came, they were massive in their nature. Had you walked into Babylon in the days of Daniel, you would never imagine that this is a country that is in crisis. And when you read through the events that we have here in Daniel chapter 1, you come face to face with the sight of a powerful Babylon. No rebellion is there, no internal strife to, to annoy them, no new enemy that was coming marching against Babylon with this vast army. None of those were problems in these days when Daniel was living. Look around, Nebuchadnezzar, he is as much in control as ever. And so the visitor coming into Babylon, what would he see? He'd see a triumphant, a prosperous nation, and one at peace with itself. But what that visitor would not have detected was that Nebuchadnezzar was a king in torment. And that torment that he had was about to spill over into every part of the nation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had just dreamed a dream. Well, no big deal about that, somebody would say, because isn't it the fact that we all dream? Our dreams normally are unmemorable fancies. They come in a bit of a flood, and by the morning time, we can scarcely remember what we were dreaming about. And so they come and they go, and we don't even carry a fraction of the dream into the next day, never mind week or month. But this one dream, it refused to die at dawn. It caused an uproar in Babylon. It almost wiped out every intellectual within the country, and it shook up everything and everybody within Babylon. And it brings into focus today the first major truth that we are going to present this morning as we examine the subject here. God has all the answers, and the first major truth is this, when man feels, God prevails. When man feels, God prevails. King Nebuchadnezzar was deeply troubled. His mind is now whirling with this constant nightmare, and he dreads the night hours approaching. And so he issues a call for his magicians and astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, and he takes out his frustrations on them. He's saying to them, now you're the smart guys. You claim to know secrets. Tell me the dream that I've had, and then also follow the dream up by giving me the interpretation of the dream. And he was savage with them. He went on to threaten them, and he told them, if you feel to first tell me the dream that I've had, and then lay out the interpretation of the dream, you're going to be cut into pieces, and your houses will be turned into a heap of ashes. Daniel chapter 2 and the verse 5. 
Can you stand in their shoes for a moment? And you've been summoned by the king, and this is what he has blurted out, and you're looking as they do at him in astonishment, and predictably the response was in Daniel 2, the verse 10 and 11, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, There is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean, and it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so these men, they are adamant. No ruler on earth has ever asked a thing like this. No man on the earth can never answer such a thing as this. That was a fair point, because what Nebuchadnezzar was imposing upon all of his wise men, it was an impossible request. They were only men. How would they know? What if your neighbor was to rush over to you tomorrow morning as you're about to get into the car, and they're in an obviously disturbed state, and they're holding a pistol, and he pointed at your head, and they say, Tell me the dream I had last night. You'd be frightened, but you'd also think, what is happening here? How crazy is this? And the wise men of Babylon, they're terrified because the king proceeded to order their execution. This is what God can do with a dream. It's lighter than a cobweb just as flimsy, and yet death threatened all the cream of the intelligentsia of the empire, including Daniel and his friends, because of a dream. Now, if a dream from God can do that, what will it be like when God Himself comes in mighty power? We sing sometimes, day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark, the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders, shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. What will that day be like if this day was sparked off by just a dream? You see, it's easy to terrify strong men and women who were outside of Christ? Why do all the the famous people have to go around with bodyguards? Why do film stars live virtually in fortresses? Why do presidents and prime ministers and all the rest drive about in bulletproof limousines? Because they're all terrified of just what might happen. This absolute monarch, Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man in the whole world at the time, was Scared, because as Daniel put it in chapter 2 and verse 29, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? Nebuchadnezzar had caught sight of something about his future. Now, he was in control of his city. And right through Babylon, the kingdom, he had a network of spies as all powerful monarchs do. And he knew from the spies 
everything that was happening in the palace, everything that was occurring in the city, everything that was happening right across the empire, but he did not want to face up to this unavoidable future. Yet this little dream insisted he dwell on that. It shattered his peace. It turned his world upside down. It was a real problem. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a revelation from God. The voice of God was saying to him that his throne was by no means an impregnable rock of ages. God started to stir the king just a little, night by night, and it was like a ship going through a storm for Nebuchadnezzar. So what did he do? Well, what do the men of the world do? When death comes knocking at their door, and they start to look at their futures, as they shower, they find a lump, and they think of the future, or they get a new chest pain as they climb the old hill that they never got a chest pain on before, and they begin to think of their futures, or God just takes somebody away from their circle of friends, and they begin to think of their own futures. What do men do at times like these? Well, unless grace intervenes, they begin to look to other men. They don't look to the living God. They look to the wits and the wisdom of man to deal with the unknown future. Nebuchadnezzar's dream drove him to man. He said, send for my men. Bring in the magicians. Round up the enchanters. I need the sorcerers. Bring in the astrologers to tell me what I've dreamed. And that's what the world always does. What's going to happen in the future? Send for the futurologists. Bring in the stargazers. Let the experts give us a printout as to what might happen. Get the horoscopes. Let's consult with a fortune teller. What did Nostradamus say way back in the day? But Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, they were clueless at this request. They spluttered. Ah, no, we, we can't do anything with this. First, tell us the dream. Tell us the dream, and then we'll explain it. But we need the contents of the dream before we can give you any interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. Anybody can spin out an interpretation. Anybody can give a prophecy. Anybody can cobble together sweet-sounding promises and fuzzy phrases about the future. Anybody pretending to look into a crystal ball or discern the leaves of teacups can tell you something you want to hear about what's going to happen in the future. But these experts who claimed we're in touch with the heavens, we are men who know the meaning of life, who said we can predict the future, who were meant to be intimate with those victory-giving false gods. Surely it should not be difficult for these men who knew the gods to be smart enough to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream as well as the interpretation. And so this was a test of their ability and authority set by the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar was looking them in the eye and saying, talk is cheap. Show me you're really in touch with the gods, that you can be trusted in predicting the future by telling me what my dream actually was. But they were bankrupt. God gave a man a dream, just one dream, and that one dream started to take up part what the mightiest military machine in the world at that time had at great cost put together. There was no one among all those magicians who had the authority or the ability that comes from a true knowledge of the true God to tell the king what his dream was. Many claimed they had the knowledge, but when put to the test, they failed. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had simply added to his problem by running to man in trying to find a solution. And now he has another worry. The dream was one worry. Now the total failure of human wisdom in front of him is another worry. And he's surrounded, he realizes, by ambitious pretenders. And his solution to the dilemma was grimly to shake his head and send his execution squad out to round up all the smart men of the kingdom. The whole academic community was at its wit's end. The government was in crisis, and all the might and the wisdom of Babylon together was shown to be bankrupt. The Chaldeans and none of their gods were up to the task. None but the eternal God of heaven could help. And so we look at Daniel 2 in the verse 19 and the verse 20. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Often in our world, yours and mine, we face things that are simply impossible. No man on earth can do them, can work through them, can find a solution. But if we believe in the God of heaven, if we are in a proper relationship with Him, through repentance of our sin, through faith in His Son, our resources, they extend way beyond the reach of earthly man. God can do what no man can do. And he said of himself in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The angel Gabriel, as we were reminded not that many weeks ago, he assured Mary in Luke 1 and 37, For with God nothing shall be impossible. He is the God of the impossible. And maybe you've come into the meeting today and you're facing what looks like an impossible task. Trouble in your life, greater than any other person can resolve. Maybe a mountain of unconfessed, uncleansed sin in there. Maybe a burden that is weighing you down and it's proving too heavy to carry. Then look to the Lord, because He alone can do what others cannot do. As the title of the chorus puts it, God can do anything. But feel, I do not know, 
as Nebuchadnezzar didn't, what lies ahead, the way I cannot see. Yet one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me. I know who holds the future. And he'll guide me with his hand. With things, with God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow with its problems, large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give to him my all. Why? Because he is the God of the impossible. So we are taught by the incident here that when man feels, God prevails. We're also taught here in the chapter 2 of Daniel that when man prays, God relays. When man prays, God relays. People love a great mystery story, and maybe this time of year you're reading a new book, and it's all about mystery, and with avid interest you'll follow the, the twists and the turns of the plots that's woven there by some of those classic mystery writers, Agatha Christie, Mary Higgins Clark, maybe even uh, way back in the day, children will be reading Enid Blyton, and for them, The Secret Seven, Famous Five, that's all about mystery, but there comes a point when you're reading where the, the mystery has to be revealed. We want answers by the end of the book. I mean, we don't want to get to the end and find there are no solutions at all, and we're as wise as we were when the mystery began. Who did it? Was it the butler? Maybe the jilted lover? Maybe the upstairs maid? Unless the mystery is revealed, the whole point of the story is lost. As far as the wise men of Babylon and Daniel were concerned, the stakes were considerably higher. Unless Nebuchadnezzar's mystery was revealed. It would not merely be the point of the story that will be lost, but their heads. Once Daniel managed to get some time from the king, he used the time so well. Notice he didn't plot his escape. Notice he didn't fill the time by organizing a conference with all the wise men. Rather, he said to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come, we need to pray. That's his answer to the crisis. We need to pray. And he spent the next time in prayer to the Lord, as we see in Daniel 2, the verse 17 and the verse 18. They were practicing the old principle that we have in James 1 and 5. If any of you lack wisdom, and they did, let him ask of God, and it shall be given him. Nebuchadnezzar, he had run away to the wisdom of the world for help. But Daniel goes to the wisdom that is from above he addresses with his friends the throne of the universe. And that night, the vision came. The revelation was given. Did you notice when it was given? In chapter 2, verse 19, it was given as Daniel slept. You getting the contrast here? Nebuchadnezzar's out pacing Babylon. He can't sleep. But Daniel could sleep this night as sweetly as Peter did when he was in prison, both of them with a the threat of death hanging over them. Why? Because they both believe God. When Daniel was faced with that need to unravel the strange and disturbing dream of Nebuchadnezzar, 
God supplied the answers. What couldn't be known by any other means was revealed to Daniel at the appropriate time and allowed him to appear before Nebuchadnezzar, relate the dream, tell him the explanation, and testify. He didn't miss this. Testify to the greatness of Jehovah before that Babylonian king. And so in Daniel 2 and verse 28, you'll find here that he says, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. He's not only a God of impossibilities, he is the God of information. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Many things are from ours. No answers are beyond his understanding. And when the need to know is there, God always provides the information. Isn't it true that life is filled with mysteries? We ask, why did this happen? Why that? Why the other? Why now? Why me in the middle of it all? And many times there are no easy explanations. And if you're struggling with a mystery in your life, if you have more questions than you have answers, remember, as Daniel did, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. And if He is your Lord, then you have the great privilege of communicating with Him. If he's not your Lord, if you haven't called upon him to be your Savior and crowned him king in your life, it's high time you did call out to him, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not away far off in some distant, inaccessible place. He's as near as our next breath is. Paul was keen to emphasize in Acts 17 and verse 28. You can carry every burden to him and leave it there. Whatever question or concern or quandary you have, go to Him. His Word and His Spirit are always available to find the answer for you. Even your faintest prayer will reach Him. And Daniel and his friends in Babylon are praying. They know that's how they'll get to the answer. And at just the right time, He will reveal the answer to your problem. He's a God of revelation, not a God of secrets. When man prays, God relays. Now, before we leave the point, notice a couple of actions of Daniel here that I think should speak to us. Instead of rushing right off to the king, or boasting that I've got the information. Daniel paused to first praise the Lord. You'll mark in verse 20 through to 23 that Daniel, what does he do? He gives all the glory to God, and he made no attempt to siphon off any portion of that for himself. You see, there's no limit to what God will do for his child who will give him all the glory. And that's what Daniel does. Before he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, he praises God. Not only that, he publishes 
Daniel had been given the dream and the interpretation as well to, verse 30, Daniel 2 and 30, to make known the interpretation to the king. God hadn't given his word in order for Daniel to, let's stay huddled here with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego with our little circle of friends here and share it with them. No, he had given it to Daniel so that he could go out and preach it before kings and nations. And the Lord has given to us a book of wisdom about the present, about the future, that deals with all the big questions in life. Who am I? What am I meant to be doing? What is death all about? What is after death? Where is eternity? How can I be saved? God has given us the answers to these questions, and He has shown Himself in Christ, in that sacrificial death, in that glorious resurrection. That's the revelation we need to take to the whole world. That's why we're having a mission this year in May. From the 5th to the 19th of the month of May. It's why we do outreach. It's why we have services. To take God's revelation and make it known. When man feels, God prevails. When man prays, God relays. And when man wanes, God reigns. Robert Ingersoll, 19th century American politician, atheist as well, he said, the universe is all the God there is. And he lectured widely on the circuit about this belief that he had that God didn't exist, and yet Ingersoll is gone. And God is still here. The pages of history are filled with men like Robert Ingersoll. People who denied, who defied the God of heaven and earth. And it seemed that those men, maybe dictators, emperors, whatever, it seemed that they had the power over millions and millions of people. And yet, without exception, they've been confronted with the realization, you know what? You're only mortal. You're going to die. You pose no threat to God. And while they swaggered around in their own self-importance, God kept the ability at all times to lift them up or put them down or cut them off, and He removed them and raised up others to take their place. Do not fear those who mock God. You might have teachers in your school. You might have pupils as well. You might have colleagues at work, and they show no respect for the Bible, and they try to peddle the devil's theories all the time. And when you hear some of them laughing at God, remember it's only divine grace that holds that person from destruction. If God were not so good, atheists wouldn't even have an opportunity to speak a word. Man's decisions seem final until God decides otherwise. When man wanes, God reigns. 
And Daniel, see, realized that even powerful dictators like King Nebuchadnezzar, they are no match for the omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe. And so he says in Daniel 2, the verse 20, 21, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His, and He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that no understanding. Well, what was Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Because that surely is fundamental to what we're saying today. It was of a huge statue. Stood up like the Blackpool Tower, or the Eiffel Tower in Paris, for that matter, or even the CN Tower in Toronto. It was visible for miles around. Its head glistened in the sunshine because the head was of gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its belly and thighs were of brass or bronze. Its legs were of iron, and its feet partly iron and partly clay. We read about it in chapter 2, verse 32 and 33. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream. And through Daniel, his messenger, he showed him many kingdoms will rise, and they will fall. And what we have in this great image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a really fascinating picture of world history. Through it, God is saying exactly what's going to happen. And we could consider the metals in the image. Each metal in the image represented a different kingdom in Daniel 2, 32 and 33. As far as Nebuchadnezzar's day was concerned, Babylon was the head of gold as mighty and magnificent as Babylon was. Under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, it would someday be replaced by another magnificent kingdom. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius, the breast and the arms of silver, Daniel 5, and Daniel 6, we have the record there. And yet even that kingdom, it too would come to an end, and others would rise after that. We would have Greece, the belly and the thigh of bronze or of brass, and we have Alexander the Great conquering the then-known world for that Greek empire. The Roman Empire would follow. That was the two legs of iron, and it did divide into the eastern and western parts. Then we have the feet of iron and clay. It's a pretty brittle mixture, and it represented the kingdoms of the end times, which would divide into ten kingdoms represented by the ten toes here. But the truth is, there is no kingdom on earth that this image does not represent. It stands for every world dominion that man builds, every human empire and every human system, every power structure of man, all the great confederacies of the ages. Sometimes they're gold, sometimes they're silver, sometimes they're bronze, sometimes they're clay, and yet they're always the same. Men make them, men build them, men erect them, men prop them up, but they're not like a mountain. They're just like heroic statues that men are building all over the place to train eyes on man's wisdom and man's ability and man's prowess. The metals in the image what about the materials in the image? 
Notice how they decrease in stability because we begin with gold at the top or we're at clay at the bottom. So the statues top heavy, easily pushed over. They decrease in their significance as well because they're in lessening value. From gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay, there's a decrease in splendor because, well, we'd far rather look at gold in its splendor than iron mixed with clay, and there's also a decrease in strength from gold to clay. Tell me this, is man getting better and better and better as time goes by? Evolution dictates he does. Human civilization is actually becoming cheaper and coarser. Is human civilization as strong and as enduring as many people seem to think and some even imagine man will discover the secret of immortality all by himself? No, he won't. Everything he does rests on brittle feet of clay. How is it going to end? Well, we have here the might against the image. Finally, a great stone suddenly appears, strikes the nations of the world, shatters them to smithereens. Daniel 2, the verse 34 and 35, that great stone or that rock represents Christ the Messiah and its expansion as it becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Chapter 2 and 35, it's the growth of Jesus' kingdom, a worldwide kingdom of power and authority and glory which can never be destroyed and will last forever. Just as he said in Matthew 21, 42 through 44. Take a close look at Daniel 2 and 44's description of this forever kingdom. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And this kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You see, our Lord is not only the God of impossibilities. He's not only the God of information. He is also the God of infiniteness, infiniteness. Kings and dictators have boosted. They're going to build something that'll last, well, a thousand years. Hitler did that with his Third Reich. Boasted it's going to last a thousand years. It was gone within a decade. The kingdom of our God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, is overwhelming. And here we are today, centuries after Daniel lived, or even after they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, and they said as they put his body in the grave, well, he won't bother us any longer. So much for him, he's gone. And yet for us, the greatest reality in all the world is the Son of God. He is our salvation. He is our forgiveness. He is our acceptance with God. We live for Him. He has supplied us with the meaning of life. He promises life beyond death. Do you know what? It's so easy to get caught up with the things in this earth that are here today and gone tomorrow. 
and get really worked up about them and consumed about them in terms of our energy, mental and physical, and the fads and the fashions and the prominent figures of the world that look so solid and so permanent today, and yet they're tempering and they're unimportant. To follow them is to change chase the changeable, is to grasp at straws because they're blown about by the wind. Only when we fix our hearts and minds on the things of God will we find true stability. Don't waste your time on what is only temporary. Neither your pleasures nor your problems will last forever. Count on that. Fix your mind on things that are above. Invest in things that are eternal. When you look to God and His kingdom, you're looking at what really matters, the only things that truly last, which is why he says in Matthew 6 and 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Make sure that your encounter with the rock of ages Jesus Christ, for encounter Him you will. Make sure it sees you embrace Him as your Savior and not refuse Him, for this rock destroys everything that resists it. Everything has to make room for this omnipotence. It's going to fill the whole earth, and in that earth that He will fill, He'll not fill it as some filthy swear word anymore. His name will rather be like perfume poured forth. The fragrance of the universe. One day there will be a multitude, 10,000 times, 10,000 singing praise, as Daniel did, to the rock of ages that was cleft for them. Tell me, have you thought of that? Whose side are you on? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? When man fails, God prevails. When man prays, God relays. When man wins, God reigns because he alone has the answer to all our problems. Daniel found it. Nebuchadnezzar discovered it. We have too, have we not? And may we continue to do until He comes or calls.